Hello, I'm Brad. And I'm Jason. You are listening to Dice, Dice in, in My Mind. So we have finally uh, come out of the busyness that is June. Both you and I have yep. a couple little, um, I shouldn't say little, but still a couple summer activities that mm-hmm. are on the docket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You and I are planning one to do probably more toward the fall. Yep. Um, maybe a little uh, bike pack camp thing and maybe try to do a recorded pseudo live session yes. um, out on the trail, wherever Nerds. that might be. In the What's wilderness, it? wilderness, wilderness. Yes, right. yes. Nerds in the wilderness. <laughs> Better than nerds in space, right? Oh, I don't know about that. Although that could, be, that, that could be, be sweet. The, that would be an episode title, I think. Um, but I was just, I don't know if we talked about this recently, but this was in my head this morning was that um, I got behind on TV shows. Yes, yes, you have. And without going into any specific one, Stranger Worlds, I have to play some catch up and looking at, and I think I even mentioned in Twitter, um, in addition to what I have to catch up on and binge, mm-hmm. um, there are, I need to go back and find some other material. And there, and then mm-hmm. I, when I posted that, there's so much out there, mm. you know, I could watch Discovery again. I just watched DS9 last year, so I need to wait another year, and then I'll watch DS9 again. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I have it's on my docket. I almost have a schedule. I'm almost due to watch um, the Lord of the Rings extended trilogy. Well, we we should talk about that off air because come September, the Amazon Prime Lord of the Rings prequel starts. Yeah. And I know we're going to be watching and talking about that. Yes. So maybe we should. It's funny you say that too, because I've, I have considered over the past six, nine months, I've thought about rereading The Lord of the Rings. But that's a lot of dedication. Well, and I, our friend Russ mm-hmm. has been, he, he is a big fan. Of the oh my god yes yes truly big fan truly big fan and he's the one eons ago that convinced me um don't buy the separate books buy it in a single tone yep that's what i did and so i did i bought a paperback version mm-hmm. you know a, a, mm-hmm. and a version that i don't want to say just disposable but if it gets a little ragged it was yep. reasonably priced and so i can yep. i can yep put some wear and tear in it i haven't read it yet and he reminds me when I see him, if we, if we, if it comes up that I am missing out by only living in that realm based off of the movies as much which, as good as they are, which are fun. I don't mean yeah. to minimize. I don't mean to get no. any hate mail on this one. Uh, they're, they're fun movies. They're beautifully done. They are a pittance compared to the books. I, I will say I enjoyed I enjoyed the three movies, but uh, and especially some scenes, um, especially when when Gondor is saved. Uh, it's got one of the best lines of any movie. But uh, okay, I just had to say one of the best lines of any movie. My friends, you bow to no one, and then oh. they is so even now is moving. But um, but the movies are. I mean, what Peter Jackson did is incredible, but they are not in any way comparable. No, yeah. you know, that when that line is great. Um, when Gandalf um is standing up against the Balrog and says, We've you all, shall not pass. We've yelled that so many times and so many situations oh, out of yeah. context. And then um I think it's yeah, I think it's in Return of the King when it looks like the end of Gondor is coming. Um, and Gandalf is sitting with um Pippin at the top and talks about this isn't the end death isn't the end um and he has this very you can hear the war in the background he has this yeah. very relaxed conversation um it's great and then when gandalf shows up as gandalf the white oh yeah. So, yeah but i you know i didn't first of all russ reminds me every time he's like okay you haven't read the books until you know who tom bombadil is that's the name that always comes up yep when 
we, and I talk with Russ, Russ, I don't, yep. Russ obviously never listens to this, but Russ, if you happen to someday listen to it, listen, we've actually called you out. I'll have to mention it when I talk to you again. That's right. Um, Tom Bombadil is the character. He goes, you haven't read the story at its true depth. If you don't mm-hmm. know who he is, I've got the song in my head right now. And I played um, back in 1990, um, a guy named Johan Demai wrote the first, a first, non-canon uh symphony number one the lord of the rings oh and um we premiered it and i premiered it as a as in my band at a high school at um officially premiered in chicago yeah yeah yeah. but that summer we had unofficially premiered it and that fall in madison wisconsin that's cool for um the state when i was in a state honors group because i was a an honors horn player Right. But I emailed him years later. I found Johan Demai online. Yeah. And um, he sent me a copy of um, the Amsterdam Wind Orchestra. Oh, cool. I got to, we're going to put this in the show notes. It's, yep. it's completely irrelevant to everything we're talking about. The Amsterdam Wind Orchestra's version of Symphony Number no. One, The Lord of the Rings, is phenomenal. They orchestrated it in the full orchestra, and the London Symphony did it as well. Mm hmm. But if you were ever playing in a band, and I don't mean rock band, I mean mm. just like a non-string marching band, band, wind orchestra band, um, this one is great. Neat. So we'll put it in there. But we digress. Um, I, I sent us into the Lord of the Rings realm. Um, you actually, I can't remember if we talked about this last week, um, but you have some reading material related to this in an indirect way. Um, I got to think the new core book you bought. Oh, I do. Thank you for the, yeah, we, I think I, I, yeah, I think I talked about this in the last one of the recent GM corners, but yeah, I got, um, uh, yeah, good, good connection. I have, uh, edge studios, uh, midnight source book that, that really, I mean, to me just came out. It's only been out for a couple months, maybe a few months. Um, and it's, it's, I, this is, again, this is my take on it. But because uh, it's all original content, obviously, but uh, it's essentially it, it. First of all, it's like I said last time, it's beautifully written, uh, really well illustrated, uh, gorgeously laid out. It's just it's one of the cleanest. I mean, if this is what Edge is going to be doing, then take my money ahead of time, because this <laughs> is this is um, this is really clean material. But it's essentially the story of what would happen if Sauron never fell yeah and banished magic and it's 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 to again to 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 quote Deadpool it's so dark but it's really it's really dark but it's it's like I've only read the backstory which is only 27 pages at the start of the source book and it's so interesting and so well laid out like like I just by reading that backstory, I understand like, okay, this is, this is how this world works. And these are the ways we would have to craft our PCs. Um, And I think to kind of transition toward, toward our interview, where we want to go is uh, as we have been told in previous interviews, we are very much in an age, a golden age of sci-fi, both on the written page, as well as on screen and uh i sorry i'm just distracted because i'm in my basement recording i can hear the thunder from the storm upstairs just starting and that's always nice to hear in the summer oh i didn't Um, know you guys are getting storms it was it was iffy it's summer it's minnesota it might happen it might not wait a few minutes (laughs) but it's happening right now so that's great um speak of speak of you know sauron and mordor not falling um, so good timing, but we are in a golden age of sci-fi. And honestly, I think tangentially, we're in a bit of a golden age, or at least an ascendant age of fantasy, as we're going to hear from an, uh, an author in an upcoming episode. But in this episode, we have yet another treat for all of you joining us to listen, because in our never-ending quest, uh, 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 uh. Mm-hmm. sorry my girls had that playing in the car last night um what song that, was that sorry that, that sorry that, that was my awful attempt to make a joke of the never-ending story 
So I so, have no idea where that came oh, from. Oh, I, so, I suspect you, most of the listeners don't either. Oh, I, I suspect they do. Um, and if not, it's my wife's favorite movie. Um, although the Stranger Things rendition is, I think, truly better. Now, Dusty Buns, moving on. Uh, we we have uh, in store for you, uh, part of Brad's soul just died. Oh, we did, have, yeah. <laughs> we have in store for you all um, an interview with an exceptionally prolific author who, oh. who really, and then I'm going to turn it back to you, my friend, who really... I mean, God has written so much and walks walks in so many of these worlds, both inside and beyond canons with which we are all familiar. So why don't you uh why don't you say a little more before we go over? Yeah, so so David Mack, David Allen Mack, um really did us a service by joining us mm. uh for a little over half an hour this week to talk. Now, um, those of you who know who he is, obviously there's a connection there to Star mm. Trek. Um, and we did talk a bit about Star Trek. It would be, we would, you know, it would have, it would have been silly for us not to. Um, but what we were both fascinated by was his abilities and his career in writing, whether it's Trek or other. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and obviously he has some connections. I don't want to give everything, anything too far away because you'll hear it in the bio. And for Mm -hmm. those of you that follow him on Twitter or his website, um, we'll have all of that in the show notes, but, um, I was just, he was, he was so gracious with his time and we got into things that were beyond just Star Trek. Um, as much as you and I, I think would both agree that we could have probably taken him hostage and talked for three or four hours about his Trek experiences, um, that he was able to talk about. And he he was happy to talk about them, but that wasn't our goal. We wanted to pick his brain in terms of writing, writing sci-fi, as you'll hear, he has a lot of thoughts about the industry, about being of, of just from the perspective of a veteran writer. And I mean, as we record this, um, he's now a grand master of science fiction. I mean, think of that yeah yeah that's um and that was a recent announcement before yep. just last month yeah before we got a chance to connect mm-hmm. with him mm-hmm. um so you know again thanks to david i yep. believe you all will enjoy listening to this um mm-hmm. you know both if you're a trek fan and or a sci-fi fan mm-hmm. um a writer just a writer, right. Just a writer in general. And whether you're writing novels or mm-hmm. like screenplays, mm-hmm. yep. um, anything, you know, because you'll hear yep. him yes. talk about his experience writing television, writing movie and writing novel. Yeah. So just, just incredible. So without further ado, let's move over to our interview with David Mack, who was truly a humble and gracious guest and really gave us um, just greater insight into writing and the publishing industry. And that's fascinating. David Mack is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 36 novels of science fiction, fantasy, and adventure. His writing credits span several media, including television for episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, games, and comic books. He has worked as a consultant for Star Trek Prodigy, and in June of 2022, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers honored him as a Grand Master with its Faust Award. He resides in New York City. So David, thank you so much for uh, taking a little bit of time with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. We know that, you know, we really kind of want to focus today on, obviously, um, there's a lot of work that you've done um, in the Star Trek world. We want to kind of focus on if that's okay. Sure. We'll kind of go where we want, but I, you are a, you know, uh, I'll use the term prolific writer. Yeah. Um, more than yeah. some, less than others. <laughs> Maybe closer to more than most, yeah. so less than some others. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like most of my friends have written more books than I have. Oh, my uh, I mean, sure, some of them are writing shorter middle grade works, but like my friend Aaron Rosenberg has written somewhere between 150 and 200 books, uh, you know, of the middle grade variety. 
my friend Keith the candidate has probably written somewhere around the same amount. Uh, okay. Kevin J. Anderson's up around 150, 200 <laughs> titles. Uh, it's a, it, Greg Cox is somewhere around 60 or 70. Oh my God. Every time I turn around, you know, Michael Jan Friedman is somewhere around 60 or 70. Every time I turn around, I feel like, wow, I'm a, I'm a slacker. I've only, I haven't even hit 40 books. Right. Yet. Right. So you stop. I'm only at 37. It, oh my God. Yeah. That's still though, inconceivable. I think to, to those of us who don't write or to those of us who write, but in very different professional arenas, the notion mm-hmm. of writing a single novel is is really kind of remarkable i think to both of us and the notion of writing scores upon scores or my god a hundred plus of them that that seems inconceivable it really does it's just a different working mode uh <clears throat> i think that i could have probably have written more books than i have if i had been offered more paying work uh, the only thing that ever really stops me is i don't like to work on spec which is to say okay. i don't like to start working on a manuscript or a story unless I know there's going to be a market for it. Yeah. Um, I find that difficult, which is why I have so few original titles mm-hmm. out in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I find spec work to be uh, both daunting. And there's the issue that, you know, for however long it takes, you're basically working for free unless it mm-hmm. sells. Right. And it's a risk. Mm-hmm. So I do have a project that I'm working on right now on spec simply because I have, no paying work under contract. Uh, nobody is docking down my door to offer me work. So I'm back in the trenches trying to come up with something that I think maybe my agent can sell. Yeah. Wow. I the the amount of of creativity and novel thought, David. I mean, granted, so many of your of your novels are tie-ins, and so okay, so there's there's to an extent a created sandbox through these canons, but. I mean that that just kind of blows my mind. How how is it that you? Well, I guess it's a two part question, so it's inarticulate. Forgive me. One, how is it that you can so readily come up with so many novel story? No pun intended. Novel story ideas, and two, a lot of them are you know they're sequential. I mean they're in series. How do you then keep track of all the things you've created, and and not cross the streams, if you will? It's it's just so much work. Well, the fir- to answer the first part of the question, which I think goes to how does one find new stories yeah. in a very well-explored yeah. uh, milieu such as Star Trek or Star Wars, um, contrary to popular belief, the more episodes and the more books there are, et cetera, that doesn't make it harder to come mm-hmm. up with new stories. It actually makes it easier, mm-hmm. at least for someone like me. Mm-hmm. Every new episode even though it introduces certain details you have to remember and be consistent with almost every episode and every book and every comic book will also at the same time, wittingly or unwittingly introduce questions or establish backstory with no explanation that simply passes by or is briefly explained in the episode, but which is ripe for dramatization or leaves unanswered questions like, well, how did that happen? Right. So, it is part of writing tie-ins is finding these tantalizing unanswered lingering dramatic questions and finding ways to explore them at novel length and then as far as the the second part of your question which is how to write them in sequence and uh, keep all the details straight Mm -hmm. part of that is the job of our editors Mm -hmm. Uh, part of it is the job of our licensing department at cbs the star trek books licensing team Mm -hmm. uh which consists of people who are deeply knowledgeable about star trek people like my friend dayton ward who now works Mm -hmm. there as well as being a star trek author Mm -hmm. uh folks like marion cordry john van sitters who has since been promoted above that level he's now i believe the vice president of global brand management for star trek Mm -hmm. so he's no longer you know involved in the tedium of reviewing books uh he has much bigger fish to fry like orca-sized fish to fry. So, but the other big useful resource I have at my disposal, which maybe writers in the 90s did not, of course, is uh, Wikipedia type stuff. I have the fandom wikis uh, known as Memory Alpha and Memory Beta. Uh, And while they are not always perfect, they are actually very good. The fans have done a very good job of trying to 
record as many accurate details as they can about each episode, about each yeah. character, each piece of technology. The cross-referencing is usually quite good. The timelines are generally pretty accurate, or at the very least, they explain their methodology so you can decide which one you want right. to use right. if you're trying to find like a chronology-based question. So I rely a lot on memory alpha and memory beta, but when I have a real question about like a really particular detail, uh, that's when it's time to go to the video. And that's yeah. why I have uh, all of TOS, all of TNG, all of DS9, uh, all on disc on my shelves. I can pull the, the DVDs or the Blu-rays down whenever I need them. Mm -hmm. I can also go online to the Paramount Plus site and watch them there if i have a question like about some random obscure episode of enterprise or voyager yeah. or whatever i can call those up if i have questions about interior locations on the enterprise during the 23rd century i've been to the star trek set tour up in ticonderoga new york which i photographed heavily <laughs> uh and as a result i have these fantastic you know photos of these replica sets that were even like replicated down to the lighting and so i was like writing a scene in in captain kirk's quarters and i was like well where would he and bones put down their drinks while they're talking and i pull up the photos of his quarters i'm like oh there's a little shelf behind the headboard of his bed yes they can put the drinks down there and so if you were to go and look at it and see it on tv you go oh yeah there's a shelf there look at that who knew so that that's how i keep the details straight that that's incredible it's as a as a silly uh, coincidence or connection here. We were, my family and I were up for one of my brothers-in-law uh, wedding up in upstate New York, and we were traveling afterwards. And on the way down, we came through Ticonderoga on purpose to see the fort and whatnot. And the exhibit was there. And I remember having to pull into the parking lot to turn around to get going the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really appreciate what, what that had on offer. And I had my wife and girls in tow and they're like, you want to go, don't you? I'm like, no, no, it's okay. We'll just keep oh, going. You I mean, missed out, and we brother. kept driving. Yeah. Oh, you missed out. Apparently, man. Jay, I think there's a reason, Jason, you haven't told me that story because I think ridicule would have ensued. In I didn't. I, I I, swear to God, up until right now with you, David, I didn't. Re I just thought, well, that's weird. There's a Star Trek exhibit in this lovely little town. And it's not I just a Star Trek exhibit. I mean, as you probably since learned, it is yeah. a fabulous uh soundstage authentic recreation of the original sets with movable walls and they're laid out on you know within this sort of you know rented space exactly as they would have been laid out on the desilu stage nine oh soundstage yeah in relation to one another so you can move from set to set the way the actors and the crew would have and they have the open walls around the perimeter so that the camera could basically just move around the perimeter of the sets uh, and not to have to move through them unless they were doing handheld shots. I, I it's have, fabulous. And they recreated uh, the lighting. They got like period authentic lights, oh like uh, vintage antique lights yeah. with vintage filters and lenses. Um, and they recreated like right down, like they were using the original, you know, set plans and the lighting plans. Uh, so they were able to recreate the nope. lighting yeah. that was used uh, on the live sets. Amazing. And I it's had, just when you walk in there and you really feel uh, like you're on the classic enterprise. I I am learning this all, David, right now. I, I literally could have just walked in. I had no idea. Well, I mean, you've had to pay an admission fee, but yes, you could okay have just walked that. in yeah. and it would have blown your oh. mind. Oh man. It, it was it was one of the most immersive and enjoyable awesome. Star Trek fan experiences uh, I've ever had with relation to Star Trek. Uh, and the guy who runs it, James Colley, is just the nicest guy, the most knowledgeable oh, wow. guy. And he and his team, it is just a labor of love. The work they put into it, the money oh. they put into it, yeah. uh just the the attention to every tiny detail. This is a work of, of passion and uh, just love. So you, if you wow. love Trek, especially the original series, yeah. this is a must-go destination. Did he know, wow. David, that, you know, with your background and everything, you were kind of there almost as like... Oh, well, it was a special research. weekend for Star Trek writers. There were about uh, oh, maybe cool. 15 or 20 of us uh, Star Trek novelists, and we got a special private early morning VIP tour uh you know close he basically closed it off just for us and he personally led us through and gave us you know the guided tour of the whole place 
Uh, and then after, I guess after the lunch period or whatever, we came back and he set up some autographing tables for us in the main, uh, lobby. And then as they started admitting the day's paying guests, uh, you know, it had been advertised in advance. Like you could bring books by these authors and yeah. these authors will be here to sign autographs and books and answer questions. So, uh, we got our VIP tour in the morning and then we, uh, did book signings and interacted and mingled with fans in the afternoon. That's cool. It if was you great. Don't- yeah. If you don't mind, because because with us being on the, the topic here of writing, how did you end up stepping into this world of writing for Star Trek or even writing in general? Has this yep. been kind of a passion mm-hmm. since you were younger? And a- oh, it's all I ever wanted to do. Okay. Really? When I was a kid, like you know, nine, 10 years old, I get these big sheets of paper and I would draw you know, like uh, a book cover, you know, I'd imagine a book cover with art and a title and I put my name on it. Cause I just imagined seeing my names on book covers, even when I was like nine or 10, I was always a reader, mm-hmm. uh, loved to read. I was always good at it. My mom, when she would run her errands on Saturday afternoons, like grocery shopping and whatnot, rather than t- keep me in tow, she would drop me at the local library mm-hmm. and the librarians would keep an eye on me and make sure I didn't wander off and, you know, walk into traffic or something, mm-hmm. but they had nothing to worry about. Cause I would just go down and camp out yeah. down in the kids section and the entertainment section. And I would either read vast collections of Charlie Brown cartoons and yes. these huge hardcover volumes, yeah. or I would just pick novels off the shelf. I was, you know, reading like treasure Island. And mm-hmm. I remember my first science fiction novel was this sort of weird pulpy adventure called, uh, the space Eagle. Uh, so I remember that, I remember that in hardcover with like, you know, the picture of the astronaut with his jet, you know, on the cover. And, uh, so I would, I was always a reader and, uh, always sort of dreamed of becoming a novelist. And, uh, you know, like most young kids who have that dream, I had my sheafs of paper typed up with stuff that was absolute garbage, but you have to at least go through the motions to get the, uh, get the motor started. Yeah. And then around 15, I took a detour. I, uh, I got interested in filmmaking and screenwriting. My mom had noticed there was a screenwriting class being offered at the local community college at the same nights and times that she was taking a business class uh you know doing continuing education mm-hmm. and i got permission from my high school uh to take college level screenwriting classes at a community wow. college so at 15 i was enrolled uh, in community college taking screenwriting i got an a in the class mm-hmm. fell in love with screenwriting mm-hmm. uh started shifting my focus of everything i was working on uh, and that's part of what led me into nyu film school yeah. uh where i got my bachelor of fine arts mm-hmm. and then it was during my time at NYU that Star Trek, the next generation uh, debuted uh, around its second season. That's when they had their open door policy for script submissions. I started submitting scripts, never broke out of the slush pile at TNG, but I kept after it when they had the same policy in place at deep space nine. And after several failures, I, uh, I sort of made the right connections and started figuring things out. And it was a combination of teaming up with the right person who had the right ability to get us in the door to be heard. Uh, but also figuring out from you know my side, what I needed to do better in order to get a story to professional level. Yeah. And that was how uh, in 95, uh, working with my then writing partner, John Ordover, uh, we managed to get, a phone pitch meeting with the folks at Voyager and the folks at DS nine. And in the course of about two weeks, we made three sales. Wow. Um, so I broke Jeez. in writing for star Trek on television, my actual yeah. first professional writing credits, uh, other than say journalism magazines or whatever. Uh, my first sort of professional fiction writing credits were on uh, television for star Trek. Wow. So I started out as a TV writer mm-hmm. and then after a couple hundred of rejected pitches and I was never able to replicate that initial success, um, I was kind of hoping, you know, I would sell a few more and get invited mm-hmm. to come out, come on staff or whatever, but that yeah. never happened and I couldn't afford to move to LA. And then <laughs> I was just sort of figuring out what am I going to do next? And it was around 2000 or so. I got my first offer to write a book. 
And that was how I started making the transition. During that time, I was mm -hmm. also working through John, who was the editor of Star Trek novels at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing side work in the office for Star Trek books. I was reading slush manuscripts and writing rejection letters so the editors didn't have to waste their time. Mm -hmm. I was writing reference materials for other Star Trek authors like John Vornholt, Peter David, mm -hmm. Michael Jan Friedman, mm -hmm. helping them keep track of their own series. Mm -hmm. uh, I was writing supplemental material when asked. Um, and basically just you know, doing general uh, editorial assistant type stuff on a freelance basis because yeah. I was picking up money anywhere I could to pay off my student loans, which were outrageous. Right. And then I got the book offer from uh, Margaret Clark uh, in 2000 to do the Starfleet Survival Guide. That worked out. I got invited to participate in the ebook series, Starfleet Corps of Engineers, mm -hmm. also known as Star Trek mm -hmm. SCE. Um and that worked out. And because of that, uh, after Wildfire, my sort of second, my first solo outing, Wildfire was very well received. That got me invited up to, uh, you know, basically play in the majors, as they say. I got invited yeah. to a two, yeah. uh, two book deal to write A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal uh, for the 2004 nine book A Time to miniseries that John was editing. Uh, one of those books hit the USA Today list, and that was it. Uh, wow. After that, I was on the schedule as a, uh, a full-time novel. Well, not full-time. I didn't go full-time until 2008. But I was on the schedule as a uh, an author of paperback Star Trek novels. So that's how I sort of, that's wow. the roundabout way of how I went from TV writing to mm -hmm. novel writing. Circling back to that first, the, the TV writing, you coming out of screenwriting, I, I'm curious to what extent screenwriting and that background and the experience that you had affects your novel writing. Well, it's interesting that uh, they both have some things in common. And uh, obviously, in terms of format and structure, they have some things that are different. Mm -hmm. um, the things that are consistent between them for me is that you have to have a good sense of the dialogue, the character voices. That is true in tie-in writing as well as in writing for the shows directly. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you have to keep in mind is pacing. You've got to think in terms of structure. Uh, those have a lot in common. Where they diverge is that novels are much larger, much more narratively complex things. Right. Whereas a script for tv of about let's say 55 pages give or take for right. a standard hour length episode uh that's got about 7500 words that's about the length of a short story right uh, a movie a feature film that runs about two hours and change let's say uh that has about the word content of a novella mm -hmm. so a novel is essentially on a level of complexity equal to roughly a season of streaming television so I had to go from thinking in terms of short, you know, very compact story ideas for television, you know, thinking in terms of a TV pitch, you think in terms of these small, very compact, direct ideas mm -hmm. to pitch novels. I had to learn to think on a much, much larger canvas. I had to think in terms of multiple character arcs, multiple story arcs. Yeah. You had to think in terms yeah. of main plot, subplot. You still had the same structural concerns, but you had to think bigger and you had to think in terms of more senses screenwriting you only write to what you see and what you hear right. that's it mm -hmm. it's also mm -hmm. a very spartan format it's almost like writing haiku but with stricter format rules yeah. whereas when you write a novel to write immersive prose you have to do your best to speak to all five senses as much as you can uh, you can't just rely on sight and hearing. You've got to get into tactile, temperature. Uh, what do things feel like? What do they taste like? What do they smell like? Um, you have to get into characters' internal monologues. One of the things when you're writing TV, it's very external. You're dealing with an omniscient external POV most of the time. Sometimes the camera takes on a first-person point of view, but most of the time you're dealing with an external point of view, which yeah. makes it easier dramatically to withhold certain bits of narrative information from the audience or to deceive the audience and then pay off that deception later. It is much harder to do that kind of trick in a novel because one of the things readers have come to expect in a novel is that a scene will have a particular character's point of view. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have an omniscient point of view uh, and some writers, you know, this used to be more common, but it's become less common over time. Some writers would just jump from one character's head to another 
within the scene and it could be a little jarring if you're not used to that as a style tolkien used to do that um these days the style tends to be within a given scene we have one character's point of view and if you're going to shift to another character's point of view it typically involves a scene break even if the scene action is continuous you indicate a scene break to show the shift in point of view Mm -hmm. but once you have this point of view you're inside a character's head you have to now not only think about the sensory data you have to filter the experience of the scene through the perception memories uh prejudices of that character and you have to take into account what that character does and doesn't know you have to take into account their subjective point of view and you have to be able to understand this character may not perceive the scene the way another character would because this character doesn't know x y and z uh and so on and so forth so there's a lot of complexity to novel writing that you don't think about when you're writing scripts mm-hmm. um so what I brought forward from script writing that I think has been useful is a sense of uh, pacing, a sense of uh, kineticism, visual thinking, being able to think in terms of grand visuals, uh, you know, epic scale uh, action set pieces. But what I've had to develop as a novelist is a more intimate approach to storytelling that allows you to experience these epic moments, but through the point of view of a character that makes it possible for you to empathize uh with them and care about the events that you're seeing so interesting you know with with and i want to be cognizant of time but i i can't i i can't not ask so you got into and you've been writing or you've written some original novels too outside of the realm of star trek and i'm like Mm -hmm. looking at the calling and dark art series Mm -hmm. um how did without giving away or without asking for info I shouldn't be asking for, how did you end up coming up with these this these ideas that that ultimately like what Dark Arts came out as a trilogy mm-hmm. um, and even the calling? Well, if you if someone who has read the calling and or the dark arts books, uh, you would find that it would be very easy to imagine that they take place in the same fictional universe, even though they came out from different publishers. If you sort of pay attention to the background details and things, you realize, huh, these could actually be, in fact, they very likely are the same fictional universe. They're just different time periods. Uh, the calling sort of started out, I was working from 2000 to 2008. I was the editor of the official website for the Sci-Fi Channel back before it became SIFI. Um, so I was uh, the editor over there. And... I had like a first look deal with NBC because I was an NBC employee. So I was trying to think if I had any ideas that I could pitch as a TV series. I thought, you know, if they're going to look at it, why not take a shot? And I was uh, just trying to come up with an idea for a TV series when I came up with The Calling. Um, I was like, well, let's see, what kind of shows tend to survive? Well, you know, it's shows about cops and firefighters and detectives and lawyers. And inevitably, the thing they all have in common is a main character of some sort gets involved in the lives uh, of different people each week, people who need help for some reason, who are up against it and need somebody with special skills of some kind to come help them. Uh, And I was like, okay, so the real question would be, you know, I've got this guy, maybe he's just an average dude, but he gets himself into, you know, various situations. My only question was, how does he figure out who needs his help? Like, you know, the, uh, in the equalizer, the guy would always run an ad in the paper and people would call his ad or whatever. And, you know, Rockford file, somebody would always leave a message on the phone. And I was like, how the hell does this guy know how to help? And, and I suddenly, I was just sort of almost semi-sarcastically musing about this as I'm walking down the street. I'm like, what is he here when they pray for help? And then I stopped and I went, oh my God, he hears when they pray for help. An ordinary dude who doesn't understand why he hears other people's prayers for help. All he knows is once he hears it, it means he's got to do something about it. So I'm like, okay, that I can work with. And from there, I built out the mythology. I built a whole sort of cosmology of why it works the way it does, who these people are, where they had come from. Mm -hmm. I wrote the calling. I was very happy with it. Uh, I see now that, you know, I, if, if I had it to do over, I'd probably execute it a little bit differently. But I mean, it was like, I think maybe, I don't know, 
maybe my ninth or you know eighth or ninth novel i've learned a lot yeah. since then i would do it very differently but i like the court concept to this day it's nice it's simple it's elegant it was optioned twice for tv never quite made it wow. second time it came close uh it was down to us or one other show sony had to pick and they picked the other show so but uh, Dark Arts uh, came about because after a number of years and uh, a number of New York Times bestsellers, I just had an itch to try and do something different. I wanted to stretch mm -hmm. my legs. I wanted to do something mm -hmm. other than Trek. Yep. And it was fortuitous to me that uh, my editor, Marco Palmieri, uh, who I had worked with at Star Trek and who I had a good working relationship with and consider a friend, he had been laid off from SNS during the Great Recession back in 08, 09. And after a number of years of surviving as a freelance editor, he landed on his feet and he landed at Tor Books. And he very quickly sort of worked his way up the ranks over there. And I was like, well, I'd like to work with Marco again. I enjoyed working with Marco. So I racked my brain to come up with a pitch uh, for something that I thought would be appropriate to Tor that I thought Marco would like. Uh, and I put it together and I got feedback from my agent. I had been working on this whole sort of concept. I wanted to do like this near future cyberpunk thing with magic. And it was, I was developing the backstory for the villain who I wanted to have, have this backstory that actually stretched all the way back to world war two. And the longer I worked on it, the more interesting I found the villain's backstory in the whole world war two arc. And I realized it was very quickly taking over the concept and at some point, I just resigned myself to it. I said, well, obviously, that's the story my brain wants to write. Yeah. I don't want to write the cyberpunk thing. I want to write the World War II thing. Yeah. And so I allowed my brain to shift gears, and I did tons of research on World War II, um, the, specifically the European theater of war. And I put it together, got notes from my agent, rewrote, 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 till she finally felt like it was ready to wow. go out in the market. We collected a ton of rejections. But fortunately, Marco liked it enough that he was able to get Tor to acquire the series on a three-book deal. And uh, we did the Midnight Front, and we did the two sequels, The Iron Codex, which was set in the, uh, the 50s as a Cold War spy thriller type thing. And then the third book, The Shadow Commission, which was set right after the Kennedy assassination in 1963. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a three days of the Condor paranoid conspiracy thriller thing. So there's a Macverse wow. then. You have the the David Macverse, right? I suppose you could call it that uh, <laughs> if you really wanted to. I'd prefer to think of it as the Dark Arts uh, universe, but I mean, it's only four books at this point. It's uh, I, I would like to have done more, but between the pandemic and a number of other factors, the series just did not take off the way I'd hoped it would. And at this time, tour is not really interested in continuing it and mm -hmm. obviously no other publisher is going to pick it up at this point. So mm -hmm. uh, I could probably try to go forward with it, uh, you know, self-publishing or going maybe through a small press if I wanted to hit up some of my friends who have small presses. But yeah. at this point, I just don't think it's uh, worth the time and the effort. I would rather start over, do something new mm -hmm. um, and just uh, try again with a fresh concept. That's right. But cool. I think you probably have, I know, we all know you have some other things going on too that probably are keeping you busy. Yeah. So, wow. um, you know, I don't want, we, we want to be cognizant of time. Um, we yeah. could probably keep talking for hours. No worries. And, We've only been on like 30 minutes here. So. You know, yeah. But um, if you don't mind, I know you have harm's way coming out at mm -hmm. the end of the year. Um, yes. And obviously some other writings and things you're involved with, like I said, regarding TV shows. Um, we'd mm -hmm. love to, if it's all right, um, mm -hmm. have you back again, just to talk about, um, you know, the writing you got going on, the the new stuff that's coming out, as well as anything that, you know, we can. No, the only about new thing I've got really coming up on the novel side, as you said, is Harm's Way. Mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. a couple of short stories that are waiting to see the light of day that uh, I've written for anthologies being edited by friends, but. Mm -hmm. Those anthologies are in various stages of gestation, and mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm not sure one will, might see the light of day next year, or it might not. Mm -hmm. Another one is almost certain to see. Uh, it'll, it'll probably come out next year. It'll be probably published by Bain. It'll be an mm -hmm. anthology mm -hmm. of space western uh, style oh, short nice. fiction, and I just wrote a story for that. 
and I just agreed to write a story for an anthology being put together by the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to say anything really about that because I don't know how much they've released about it publicly. Uh, but I, I'm interested. I'm very excited about the idea I've come up with for that short story. So I've, cool. I've got some short fiction on tap. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, after harm's way, which comes out in December, yeah. uh, no novels in the pipeline as of yet, mm-hmm. but I have a, an idea for a modern day sort of, uh, techno spy espionage action thriller type thing. Uh, mm-hmm. no fantasy elements, no spec elements, just mm-hmm. uh, straight up techno thriller. Um, uh, sort of trying to follow in the footsteps of my, uh, my acquaintance, actually, my, my buddy uh, James Swallow, who has had great success with his Mark Dane series, okay. uh, which I think was recently optioned for for the uh, big screen. Uh, wow. So I'm trying to follow his footsteps and and mm-hmm. learn from what he did right. Mm-hmm. Oh, one just before we before we let you go, David. One last question because it it was implied in some of your comments earlier. Uh, we've been immersed in this pandemic for mm-hmm. a long time now. I'm I'm curious. Uh, from your perspective as a prolific accomplished writer, I mean, as a, as a grandmaster, mm-hmm. um, what, what, are, what have you seen uh, it, happening in the industry that you attribute to the effects of the pandemic? And, you know, beyond just what we hear constantly from writers in our interviews that, you know, the, the, you know, with shipping and whatnot, right. The timelines are, are often pushed back. I get that, but I'm curious if you see other things that are affecting um are, are you asking more about like things like uh, trends in storytelling as opposed to trends in business? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, what I have noticed is that there has been an uptick in the in stories, not only of apocalypse, and of course, you know, people doing their mm-hmm. own takes on channeling the pandemic and their personal experience. Um, there's just been a lot of stories I've noticed about endings about people confronting mm-hmm. no win scenarios i mean in the mm-hmm. same year that uh dayton ward james swallow and i released uh the star trek coda trilogy which mm-hmm. you know, was the end of 20 years of shared literary continuity uh because you know we had to sort of wrap things up because we were no longer the books had done this thing for 20 years where we had all these great ongoing storylines in the 24th century yeah. and the moment picard came out none of them could be canon anymore and right. Uh, we just decided to tie a bow on it and wrap it up in tragic fashion. And uh, the trilogy actually serves as a metatextual commentary on the circumstances that led to its creation. Uh, but I've noticed, you know, in the same year that we had that, you had James Bond, No Time to Die. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, spoiler alert, uh, Bond dies. Um, I, so, I saw it three nights ago for the first time. I kid you not. Yeah. I saw it in the theaters. I love that. I, I have it on a uh, ultra HD Blu-ray already. I love the soundtrack for it as well, oh my God. but I mean, like I've, I've been seeing a number of stories in that vein of the, you yeah. know, the characters presented with the, you know, the, the, the no hope, you know, the no win scenario, but maybe there's a way to win by losing. I'm seeing uh, that theme. Mm-hmm playing out on a number of TV series. I'm seeing it play out in a number of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a certain nihilism, a certain hopelessness that gets channeled through art, mostly not because that's what people believe in, but because they need to expunge it. You need some sort of cathartic experience just to deal with it and then move past it. Um, so I, I think that that is, yeah. you know, there's, there's yeah. definitely an uptick in uh those sorts of storylines and you know, sort where people are like, wow, this is really kind of a bummer. Um, yeah. And it can be hard to take. Uh, I noticed, you know, that the James Bond film got a lot of very vitriolic negative reaction from fans who were like, well, that's not what I pay to see, you know, in a James Bond movie. And we got the same sort of feedback on Coda. You know, it's like, that's not what I buy a Star Trek book for. It's like, well, maybe we're just trying to produce something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, art has to go where art has to go. Yeah. That's I like, I like the fact I just, when you made the comment earlier about how, when you were writing, your brain just kept driving you instead mm-hmm. of techno punk, just step, kept driving you in a different direction. And I, I haven't heard it that way before, but you verbalized mm-hmm. it in a way that resonated. And, mm-hmm. and I appreciate that. Um, mm. David, thanks again for time. Um, yeah, so much. So I really appreciate it. 
Um, yeah, I could. Uh, I mean, you know me, I could just yap all day. But uh, that's great. Great, uh, great talking with you, and we'll uh, talk again sometime about something else. Would love yeah, it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, David, and congrats again. Yes, thank you. Again, thank you, David, for the time. Um, fascinating. I think you know we always we always tend to record these, and then we sometimes have a couple days to process. This time mm-hmm. we really didn't have that much time, so. I want to come back to the discussion, but to me, it's one of those where it was, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of COVID fog, but I just, I have to process that. I think I'm going to have to listen to it again myself Yeah. just because there, it was, there was some, yeah. there's some richness and depth to the discussion that goes well beyond what I think people would normally expect. Yeah. Um, when well, well, you have I mean, someone with David, like David on a call. On well, the and for, and, you know, we're always trying. I mean, we, you and I talk about this a lot offline that we and we tell our guests this before we click record that we aren't interested in rehashing what's been done. Um, uh, you know, we've got we, we, we've been interviewing uh, people who have had many interviews before us and that's already out there and that's great. We we would like to take the next step and ask about process, ask about experience, ask about uh, insights of what their worlds are like, whether they're created or real. And so, for example, with David, I was very intrigued by his thoughts regarding how the pandemic has shifted what's being written in the sci-fi and fantasy realms. Yeah. Um, you know, he, to, 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 true disclosure here, um, when I asked the question, I was actually thinking in a bit of a different direction. And he, and he's like, you're asking this? And I'm like, well, yeah, go for it. And he just ran with that and we got so much more. And that's just... That to me, that's one of those things, like you said, Brad, where it's like, you got to think about that for a while and then compare that against the data that are out there and what other people are saying. And now, like when you go into a bookstore, starting to look at titles, wondering, okay, so are we seeing a shift on the bookshelves to these dystopias, right? Um, Well, we'll see. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah. And again, thank you, David, for it. Um, and, And it will be. You know, he's got material coming out toward the end of the year, like you heard, um, and we would love to have um, him back. Um, but speaking of books, we already talked yeah. about, obviously, we had a little bit of a Lord of the Rings. Uh, uh, a, a primer, yeah. 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 So now in the GM corner, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to I was going to. Well, since you, you beat me to it, I'll huh. jump. So uh, back in 2016, Cubicle 7 had come out with um, Adventures in Middle Earth. Yep. And um, I was able to pick that up probably 2017-ish mm-hmm. um, at one of the local game stores. Yeah. And then right before, or right at the time that they announced that they had lost the license, Cubicle 7, I found the Lore Master's Guide. So I okay. have, in effect, really, I didn't get any source books or anything like that, but I do have, like, the two main, the Player's Guide and the Lore mm-hmm. Master's Guide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Just the, I, I didn't mention at the beginning, but that's where the Lord of the Rings, you know, where it popped in my head earlier this week. Cause I was, I even posted on Twitter. I think I'm like, I need to find something else to read. And I don't necessarily, I have a bunch of novel and work that I'm working through. I just started uh, Beth Balls. Beth, I just started working through your trilogy, mm-hmm. um, but I also want something that's RPG related in terms yep. of like a core rule book. Yep. So um, you had picked up the, one we just talked about from edge studio i pulled off the shelf my adventures in middle earth nice and was going to read it again because even though let's be honest everyone everyone knows this just because something's not being published right now doesn't mean you can't play it no of course not um and i know i'm fascinated by free league publishing has acquired the license to the one ring and there was a one ring i remember yeah gaming system i have that one as well yep the original version I have not yet picked up the new one. Um, it's been on my mind, but um, I've pondered doing that. But before I do that, I'm going to read, I'm going to pick up, or I have picked up, I have put it on my table. I haven't started it yet. So it's on my desk. I haven't touched it in a while. I'm going to pick it up and read that again. I think other than that, um, I've talked with you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, with everything going on, 
um, my focus has been um, trying to find and much like people like scheduling to binge what shows when the same thing with me with reading and I've been wanting to read uh, Beth's novels for a while I have them um, and now that things have calmed down in June that's my that's my docket. So what about you? What, we talked about the book that you talked about. We just, I, I sent you back to last week with that. What has been your, uh, where's yeah. your mindset been? Um, well, I, I, there are a few things on my conceptual desk at the moment relative to uh, the GM corner, but it, I'm going to just briefly mention one that's up and coming uh, tomorrow as of the drop of this episode tomorrow uh becky chambers's latest book releases uh tomorrow a, a prayer for the crown shy comes out this is by it's actually Ooh. a uh well i don't know what you'd call it is it is it a novella i'm never quite sure how that how the actually that's funny because because David actually mentioned novels, novellas, short stories. Uh, but this is essentially a novel. So I've talked about Becky Chambers and her work before. Uh, and uh, I love her novels. And then she had written The Monk and the Robot, a monk and robot novella. And I finally read it and was really quite taken with it. It's uh, it's quite cerebral. It's got a totally different pace. Uh, it's really a good read. Well, I've been eagerly awaiting the follow-up the Monk and Robot number two novella, again, a prayer for the crown shy to release. Um, right, it's a psalm. It's a sorry, it's the sequel to a psalm for the wild built. And um, it's a uh, the first one was really, really intriguing. And so I've really been looking forward to the second one. It comes out tomorrow. Uh, I'm hoping to pick it up tomorrow or the next day at uh, my local indie bookstore. Um, uh, next chapter booksellers place I love. Um, hopefully they'll have it. I'm I'm a couple chapters away from finishing reading what I'm reading right now. So that's what's been on on my mind uh, coming up. That's the kind of thing where I'll probably read it over the course of the week, and then um, and then there's another book coming out in about a week or so. And I, I'm just not going to say anymore because of the people we have lined up right now to feature oh, yes. in the coming couple of months. Um, yes, yes. There's a lot of book stuff we could talk about, but since these people are so gracious to spend time with us, I'm just going to keep it there. Uh, very much looking forward to Becky Chambers's uh, upcoming book tomorrow. So that's what's on my desk. Can I, can I digress here before we wrap it up? So read a bit, um, brother. I just happen because you know, I do um, always had to look over at books. If we talk about something <laughs> on Amazon, he's already ordered three different things. So actually just two, okay. but um, I was looking at the one ring, like I said, yep. free league publishing. I, yep. I actually just picked that up while we were talking. Of course. But you did. if you search the one ring on Amazon, it comes up with the one ring, the actual, <laughs> the actual ring. And the there are different versions of it. Titanium, gold-plated yeah. tungsten. Yes. Um, you know, if you get your ring size, you can actually yeah. have the one ring right. as your, as a ring to wear. And I'm just wondering. If, Disclaimer to purchasers. Yeah. If you then put the ring in the fire and it doesn't work, Amazon will likely not take it back as a return. Oh, good. Yeah. And they, they are not liable for any burns or physical damage that you may do to yourself. Right. If you or the release that. of any demigods. Let's just, yes. it's probably in the fine print. But, but I can find a very reasonably priced ring um, that I could potentially use as um, a wedding ring. So I'm going to have I'm to have a conversation sure, with Angela. I was just going to say, I'm sure Angela would be thrilled that you want to represent your marriage with the ring cast in the fires of Mordor. <laughs> See now, isn't that anyone, the best anyone, way? To, isn't that the best way to wrap up an episode? We're going to end it there so that Brad can start preparing the the legal paperwork, <laughs> or or I can give her time to actually start prepping. Right paperwork. here, honey, I already put my name in all the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. 
on that note, since we have nowhere else to go, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Be well, stay well. We will see you next week. Bye.